Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, we're in the new year. We're still rolling with yeah. new episodes, you know, coming out usually a couple weeks after we record, but uh, you, you're still nine days in here, still sticking with all your New Year's resolutions? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah for good. sure. <laughs> uh, and, and I actually had a, had a great New Year's. Good. I haven't gone out, you know, in probably 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, most New Year's are just, I look forward to just relaxing with the family and just kind of chilling. And most New Year's in Minnesota kind of suck anyway. They're cold and icy and don't want to be out on the road. But I was actually in Hollywood at the Magic Castle for oh, wow. New Year's. It was, it was pretty spectacular. They do a costume party, a masquerade ball. And it was a lot of fun. It was kind of like a goth masquerade. So it was fun. Got to dress up. There was a date. We had matching costumes and it was cool. Were you a mind flayer again? No, <laughs> I didn't do that. I wanted to be able to interact and actually sure. eat and drink and such. So yeah, my costume was much more tamed down. But it was all, all fancy and kind of eyes wide shut sort of masquerade. Oh. <laughs> what well, Minus the orgy, <laughs> mind you. But, oh, you know, shut. casino night and magic and food and drinks and dancing. I've never seen dancing at the Magic Castle, but they had one of the big rooms open and had a DJ. And it was actually a, a lot of fun and toasting him a New Year's. So, yeah, I really had a great time. That's awesome. That's awesome. You, what did you do for New Year's? Well, New Year's was just home with just one kid this time. Two were out of, out of town and, and one went over to a friend's house. So, you know, fairly quiet night. But earlier today, definitely not quiet. We started construction on a little bit of a remodel here where I'm getting a real office now instead of just using a corner of my bedroom. And today was jackhammer out all of the, the existing concrete in my front patio area so they could lay a new slab that's at the same height as the rest of the house. So that was a whole day of trying to work while jackhammers going on about 20 feet away. That's cool, though. It's exciting. It is exciting. Looking forward to moving into new digs here soon. So let's move forward with first the Patreon. You know, big thanks as always to all of our patrons with their contributions to our little show here. And if you're interested in doing the same, just go over to patreon.com slash double loop podcast. And I thought I would just mention in the new year that I am doing a class in Irvine, California. That's May 6th through 8th. The class is Practical Answers for Challenging Questions in the Courtroom. And that's the class I teach with Carrie Hall and Brendan Max, a defense attorney. So it's an opportunity for students to really talk to and get feedback from a defense attorney on some of the things that can be issues or challenges in, in the courtroom. Keeping in mind that students never have to testify in the class they get to actually see Brendan cross-examine either myself or Carrie, where the instructors get cross-examined, not mm. the students. So it's always kind of fun for the students to watch. Some sweat-inducing questions thrown at you guys. Oh, for sure. Even though I've been doing this now for a few years with Brendan, he still finds new questions to throw at us, new scenarios, and still kind of keeps us on our toes. Sure. So always fun. And have a where in the world for you, Eric. Yeah, let's go with that. All right, if you're ready for this one. Okay, the first clue is that this country has the most castles in Europe. In fact, it actually has the largest castle in Europe. Okay. Beer is very popular in this country. In fact, a particular kind of beer, a Pilsner beer, comes from this country. 
and I believe it's actually one of the top consumers of beer in Europe. The sport that is considered their favorite sport is ice hockey, and they have produced a number of NHL stars, including one of my favorites, Yamir Yager, who was a Pittsburgh Penguin. Okay. The word robot was created in this country. This country's author wrote a book titled R-U-R. You might be familiar with that in the Android literature, sci-fi literature. Yes. But now I'm not sure what the country is anymore. Okay. It was translated to English. Sure. And then finally, the capital city in this country is often filmed for other famous cities because it's very cheap to film movies there. So it often doubles as London, Paris, etc., sometimes even American cities, and such movies as From Hell, London, Les Mis, Paris. Some of the Mission Impossible movies and the Born Identity movies have all been filmed there. And also Far From Home, the Spider-Man movie, was also filmed here for Paris. Okay. Do you have any idea what country I'm thinking of? There's a couple in my mind, but I won't, I guess I want to say Romania. So close. No. Czech Republic. You Czech Republic. Uh, and that's the city is Prague. Yes. I thought about doing a Prague rock question, oh. but I thought <laughs> that's a different kind of Prague, that's, so it doesn't quite count. But anyway. It's funny. I, I thought I knew where you were going at the beginning, and then the robot question. I'm like, oh, that's, I know, I can't remember what nationality the author was, but I knew it was, I was originally thinking somewhere more Germany, but um, mm, yeah. But I was like, nope, I know it's not Germany, so. The Pilsner beer yeah. comes from Pilsen in the Czech Republic. Anyway, some of those countries all blend together. You were in the right geography. They do. But, yeah. the, yes, definitely. The Eastern Bloc countries, I struggled differentiating every single one of them. That in Africa, it's tough for me to remember the specific differences. But a great great series of clues, though, all the way from beer to sci-fi and hockey in between, (laughs) which I guess is closer to beer, really. Yeah, when you think about it. All right, well, let's move into the main part of the show then. Glenn, you were in Australia recently. Yes. And saw a number, if anyone has, has missed a few episodes here, a number of presentations, including our guests here today. Right. So we're going to welcome Andrew Chapman or as I was told by uh, his co-worker, Michael White, who we've referenced many times, that Andrew is such a nice guy. Definitely call him Andy. And Andy works for the New South Wales Police Organization in Australia, which is in the eastern part of Australia. And he's been there for 21 years. He started as a scene of crime officer, or SACO as they are known and became a fingerprint specialist in 2012. I had the opportunity to see Andy present on error rates and an error rate study that was conducted with Australian examiners. And Eric, I know how excited you are about error rates and these sorts of black box error rate studies, so I knew that we had to get Andy on right away. Absolutely. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Eric. All right, Andy, welcome to the show, and To start off with our first normal question, how did you end up in the fingerprint field? Is this what you you sought out to do, or did you come by it by chance, as many of our other guests have? Let's just say I took the the scenic route. (laughs) Sorry, scenic scenic route for you guys. Yeah, so when I left school, 
forensics was not in any shape or form in my mind of what I would be doing. Actually, when I left school, I wanted to do marine biology. And my parents, who said it much nicer than this, said, you big dumb-dumb, my job's in marine biology. Do something practical, go and do engineering. So I did engineering. Engineering and I never really gelled. And then I started teaching. And then I went back to uni to get a diploma of education. And at the same time, I did a biology degree. And I liked the biology so much, I ended up getting an honours year in biology instead of finishing the Diploma of Education, which then led to some research work at uni, almost starting a PhD. And then I ended up working for NATA. You guys heard of NATA? Oh, no. It's the National Association of Testing Authorities. So oh, okay. they are the sole accreditation body in Australia. So basically, so NATA, if your laboratory wants to get accredited for whatever testing work it does got it that's the body that will give you accreditation for those tests okay so us here in new south wales police force the forensic services is nada accredited we're still not a fingerprints yet no 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 that's right so at nada there was a girl there who had applied for us one of these newly created civilian scene of crime officer positions so the soco position and i thought that sounds pretty cool and I applied when there was a little intake for, you know, for country locations. And I'd managed to jag a spot, so packed up the wife and kids, and we went to regional New South Wales for about seven years. And so while I was examining crime scenes, I guess I found my love for fingerprints, which then started me on my journey to end up becoming a fingerprint expert. Wow. that's Everybody has their own way that they've... Seemingly accidentally fell into fingerprints. That is one of the more securitous routes that we've heard about, but nice. that's that's great. I'm sure you find that all of these past experiences of things that you did years and years ago will just suddenly and unexpectedly be helpful in what you're doing now. I, I've seemed to find it that way. Yeah, I think they are definitely, especially definitely biology, that's that science theory. Well, and engineering as well with the maths and the physics and yep. that side of it. But I don't know about you guys, but when when I went to uni, forensic degrees didn't exist. Yeah. Was that the same in the States? Probably was. Um, it depends on what university you went to. I think Glenn went someplace with a specific forensics program. I definitely didn't. I wasn't yeah. in the cards for me until after I got out and started looking around for what my degree might be useful for. But yeah, we all have our own path. So for the listeners, we thought that because we're going to dive into Andy's presentation and some of the findings, we thought that just because we have a lot of lay listeners, it might be helpful to define some things up front because we're going to get a little jargony with some of the terms and we're going to talk about error rate calculations and these terms and error rates like false positive and false negative, et cetera. So Eric, before the show, you were just mentioning that there's actually a pretty good resource, a surprising resource that describes these various terms. You want to talk a little bit about that and jump into that? Yeah, yeah. So as we go through the all these terms, you know, true positive, false positive, true negative, positive predictive value, true negative rate, false positive rate, all, all these terms, they're all laid out fairly well on the Wikipedia page. So if you just search for sensitivity and specificity, you scroll down a bit, you see this big table that lists off all these terms. And then how each of the calculations or the rates are calculated from the, the raw data. I've always liked the 
you know, the official term for this table is called a confusion matrix. And yeah, the first time you look at it, that's probably, you know, confused Pikachu face. Once you kind of work through the columns and the rows, it's, you can get a handle on it pretty easily. Right. It makes sense. But there are important measurements that tell you about the performance and efficiency of a test. So for example, as a fingerprint examiner, we're routinely given either matching or non-matching pairs of fingerprints to compare. And when you're working cases, you don't know if they're a match or not, but you have to make a decision. And when you take a test where a test provider knows the answer, called ground truth, then when you make a decision that's either correct or incorrect, there's a measurement for what that is. So for example, when you make correct decisions, such as true positive correct identifications or true exclusions or true negatives, that's an important measurement of the examiner's accuracy, and those are referred to as sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity being correct identifications, specificity being correct exclusions when the images are coming from different people. Conversely, when you make a mistake and you say that it's an identification and the images are coming from different individuals, well, that's a false positive, and that can be a very serious kind of error because the ramifications could be that, well, this person gets charged with a crime that they didn't commit and associated with a crime that they didn't commit, and the person's not the source of that latent print. Conversely, if you have a false negative decision, you say that there is not a match there when, in fact, they are coming from the same source, and the outcome here could be you potentially missed an opportunity to maybe catch a bad guy or stop someone from future crimes by identifying the source in a particular case. And those are the main ones that we're going to deal with. There's a couple of other ones. Eric, do you want to talk about positive predictive value and what your tables there say? Yeah. So what Glenn had mentioned, like you can look at another way of looking at this. So, so that's the positive predictive value. So out of all of the IDs that an examiner makes, how many of those IDs are correct? So in that instance, again, matches it up very nicely, like with what we do into court. Out of all the times someone said ID, they're presumably there in court because they said ID. How often are they correct? And that's, that measurement is called a positive predictive value. And then its corollary is the negative predictive value out of all of the exclusion or non-matching decisions. How many times was the examiner correct? Great. So that lays the groundwork a little bit. So Andy, if you wouldn't mind why don't you tell us the study design and walk us through a little bit about what you guys tested because, and this is pretty groundbreaking because as far as I'm really aware, it's one of the first real studies in Australia that is really using images and a study design that's very similar to casework. I mean, the, there's one other study that comes to mind, the Tangan study out of Australia, but the, the study design is quite different from actual casework. This is very similar to casework and really the first of its kind there. Yeah. Um, so that was the initial idea was to try and make a study that would kind of replicate casework as close as possible. So the basic design is there were 40 trials, well, so 40 latent prints that would be compared. Those latent prints were presented to candidates with a set of 10 single-finger like record prints, which had been drawn from a AFA search. So 
the idea was that we would find the best close non-matches that we could from that NAFIS search. So each latent print was scanned onto AFIS with the corresponding candidates coming back. Any candidate who could be easily excluded based on, you know, first level detail was removed. So if it was if it was different pattern type or the ridge count was was out, clearly out, that would be removed. So the idea was that we would get this close closest non-match we could get. And then so each latent, if the examiner deemed the latent to be suitable, would then be compared to each of those 10 known prints and they would need to make a determination whether it was identified, inconclusive or excluded for each 10 candidates. Were they presented like an APHIS list where you had them ordered and scored as well, where candidates were effectively looking at a list or were they randomized in their presentation? And then also, if they made an identification at the top of the list, is there any expectation to keep going beyond that, looking at the remaining, or would would they have understood there would only be one match possible in the list? Okay, good questions. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so firstly, participants were told that the list was in AFIS order. So candidate one had the highest score. And candidate 10 had the lowest score. And they could see those scores? No, they couldn't see the scores. They just had the rank. They just had the okay. known prints in order. So okay. candidate 1 was high. Candidate 10 was the lowest score. Now, being a fingerprint examiner, most people, I think, once they, if they made an identification at, say, candidate 2, their expectation would be that they wouldn't find another match. But they weren't told that explicitly. They were just told to make okay. a determination for okay. each candidate. They were required, though, to go to the end of the mm-hmm. list. They were required to get to the list, yes. Okay. And were you able to vary the position as well if there was a match on the list, or did you just let it naturally fall wherever the scores fell amongst the non-candidates? No. So the position of the match, if, if the match was in the list, was artificially placed by, by uh, myself, okay. and that was just done in a random placement. Okay. So for the 40 trials, we had 29 with a match in there and 11 had no matches of those trials. And then for those 29 with a match, the true match was just placed in a random spot. So out of the 10, about three times it was at the top of the list and about three times at the very bottom of the list. Yeah, okay. roughly. So as they're going through, is it like a normal APHIS where you typically just look at one candidate finger at a time? Or could they see more than once at a, one at a time? They could basically... All the images were given to them at mm. once. The, the results were recorded on a online survey, survey that we'd set up. And so the first question that people got asked was, does the latent impression hold value for comparison? And if the candidate would say no to that, then that was the end of it. They would just then move to latent sure. number two. And the question, does it hold value for comparison? And if it does hold value for comparison, they would then step through and be asked to decision for each of the 10 candidates that were presented alongside. And then like after they went through, you know, candidate one and two and three, could they then go back to candidate one or did they have to go through the, the, uh, no, they could go back because there was, there was no formal software like set up to make them do it in order. It was basically use your standard comparison software. Here's the lightning image. And here are the 10 candidates that go with that particular image. Got it. And then, um, so they had the standard 
finger comparison software that they're used to, so they could mark up features on these prints as much as they wanted. Yep. yep. Okay. And now you had different groups go through this, you know, uh, novices and, uh, you know, all the way up to experts. And they all were using the same software to view and, and mark up, presumably, all these uh, images? Yes. So there were four groups. There was the novice group, so people who had no real formal fingerprint experience. And then we had our inductee group. So these are people who have just joined us in fingerprints, and they've gone through a, well, now it's now a four-week program, but it used to be a six- or seven-week program. They learned the basics of fingerprints, how to conduct comparisons, and they would do a bunch of easy sort of ink-to-ink comparisons. And then at the end of the course, they'll do just dabble in doing some latent comparison work. They learn how to use the software. Sure. And then the next group was the technician group. So these are people who have been, uh, they had, as it turned out, they had at least one year's worth of latent print experience. But they were not experts yet. And then, then we had the expert group. These are all AFSAB certified experts. And then clocking back, sorry, the novice group sat in on a little, I gave them a little presentation of what does identification mean? What does inconclusive mean? And exclusion. And then taught them how to drive the forensic comparison software. I've always been curious about this. Where, where do you find the novices? Where, for your study, where, where did you pull them from? About half of the novices were people who work here, like within this building okay. at police headquarters. Some of them were joining fingerprints. They hadn't had any training yet. So they had an interest in fingerprints, but they hadn't had any formal training in how to compare fingerprints. So I kind of grabbed them and got them to do this study before they'd done anything else. And then there were a number of people from within the department aren't in forensics at all, and then some university students. It was pretty much the mix at the moment. Okay. So then let's get into some of the results here. And what, what were some of the differences that you saw in these different groups and the suitability decisions that they made? So initially, the first question being, does you know, looking at the latent print suitability, so of the 40 latent prints they looked at, novices found just about a third of them had value for identification, let's say, and roughly half they said had value for comparison. So half the prints they weren't looking at. Oh, wow. They were saying that they weren't usable for, for or suitable for comparison. And then that percentage increased basically with training. So experts were saying that roughly 98% of those um, latents were usable. For comparison. On average. Wow. For com- yeah, yeah, this is for comparison. Yeah. And 85% were value for identification experts. So if we, if we look at just the value for identification, novices were 35. The inducted group were 51%. Technicians jumped to 79%. And then the expert group jumped to 85%. So with training and experience, they're seeing you know, more value in impression. Yeah, that was something that really stood out to me was, and I'm sure we'll get to this with the other data, that the differences between technician and expert were there, but pretty minimal compared to the vast difference between the inductee and the novice. This is something that I've observed in my thesis work, something I've noticed elsewhere and in other studies. And it, it speaks to that if you take a trainee and you give them six months to a year of training, you had these up to a year of training here, 
then you'll notice that the difference – there are minor differences, but they're just not as great as one might think. And you just think of trainees as being almost incompetent, but their skill difference is is really just below that of an expert. And it really does also bring into question some training programs, which can be really extensive. I mean, we heard at that conference, and I'm aware of agencies that can do you know, three, four, five, six years of training to become an, you know, a fingerprint expert. And that just seems almost excessive. And your data as well as other data seem to show that as well. Yeah. So these technicians in this group had at least one year up to probably four-ish, five-ish years of experience. Mm -hmm. So a lot of mm -hmm. them were on the cusp of becoming experts. Okay. So yeah, as far as training in Australia... It's roughly, well, let's say New South Wales, it's kind of four to five years where a year of that will be spent doing crime scene work and then three to four years will be spent looking at or comparing latent prints. Yeah. Roughly. There is some payoff. I mean, it's in your data. I've seen it in some other data. There's a couple of percentage points of payoff there, but... Really, it does beg the question if some of these technicians could be doing you know, property crimes or minor casework you know, earlier in their career before having to get you know, to this four, five-year, six-year, whatever it might be in some countries. It's such an extensive amount of time to commit to, to make sure that the person's ready for the job. Yeah. Sorry, Glenn. So when you say casework, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I'm, like, I'm thinking – could here at least in the United States, could some of these technicians start working doing comparative work in property crimes where they're looking at auto theft or burglary or maybe some minor offense crimes as opposed to the more serious crimes against people, but could they be employed to do some of that work earlier but on? Casework typically means doing the comparison and writing the report with your name on the report. Right. Okay. So – yeah, trainees here, or these technicians, they start looking at comparing, you know, casework fingerprints, but then that will then need their results obviously need to be verified by experts before being released. Oh, but they can write a report? No, they can't write a report, but they write they will write results. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we call that uh, what's that monitored casework, Eric, or supervised yes. casework effectively? Okay. okay. Yeah. So no report writing until you actually get signed off as a, an expert. Right. All right, moving on. So, Glenn, it may come down to the samples here. It seems like from the, the survey at the end seem to be generally representative of casework. And that difference between the, the, the technician group and the expert group, you know, be able to see a whole lot of difference or only a slight difference at this level. But if you stack the deck and use a data set that's only those edge level cases, you know, then you know, that difference may become more stark. Right? I don't know. I'm thinking of other experiments here conducted in the U.S. and where exactly that happened, where it was stacked. And those differences were there. But again, we're talking about a couple percentage points. You know, so move on to the next slide here. And, and you know, what we're going to try to do is, is uh, you know, attach or make this PDF of the slide deck available to uh, listeners here. It's just such a visual presentation you know, that it really, I think, would help to see you know, what we're talking about here for everyone listening, if, if you're able to download it and follow along. 
But the next slide is talking about decisiveness. So how often these different groups reached a conclusive meaning identification or exclusion decision as opposed to no value or inconclusive. What did that show, you know, in the in these different rates for these groups? All right. So once a participant had deemed that the latent print was suitable, they would then conduct 10 comparisons and basically just counted up how many times they, they said inconclusive or times they were definite in those decisions in that it was an identification or an exclusion. So we can see that experts sitting 99% conclusiveness. Is that a term? Yeah. So they're very decisive in the decisions that they make. The technician group was not much lower at 97%, which then fell away to 76% for the inductees and 70% for the novices. But you also have to bear in mind that novices are only looking at, you know, half as many prints as the experts are as well. Oh, so this is not counting the no-value ones. Good point. And would it be the case that if it was one of the non-mated trials, that would count for 10 conclusive exclusions if they excluded all 10? Yes. Okay. That yeah, That's going to factor into your denominator, obviously, in your calculations. Yes. So if they did yep, that's huge. a non-mated sample, if they did nine exclusions and one inconclusive, you're counting that as nine exclusions and one inconclusive. For this graph here, yes. Okay. So I like really like this next set of slides here where you, you took this performance or this conclusive type of measurement and went beyond just like simple bar graphs and tried to show it on a grid with the, the top right corner, a perfect examiner that always makes a, the correct and conclusive decision. Go ahead and walk us through these few slides. Yeah, so for a matching trial, if the examiner correctly identified the true match and correctly excluded uh, the other nine uh, record prints, that would be correct, they got it right. And for the non-matching trials, if they had 10 correct exclusions, that would be counted as correct. So perfect examiner had 29 correctly matching trials and correctly excluding in the non-matching trials. Now, my expectation was that no one would be perfect, not just because it's perfect, but because the latents themselves, I didn't expect all of them to be clearly identifiable or excluded. Okay. But there were some examiners who got really close. They were just one off uh, one way or the other of getting mm. to perfect score of 40. And Andy, just to do a quick calculation here, what this means is for one examiner, if they found all 40 to have been of value, yes. there were 29 potential matches. So you could have 29 potential IDs, but then that would leave nine times 29 plus 11 times 10 non-matches or 371 exclusions. So a perfect examiner getting everything could have a maximum 29 identifications, 371 exclusions. Just trying to put that number out there. Yeah, that sounds right. And for like the, the y-axis here, which is the all 10 candidates correctly marked as exclusion for the non-matching samples, if someone marked nine exclusions and one inconclusive, then that counts as, as that whole set being not not fully not, correct. Not fully correct. That's right. So this is looking at complete 100%, you know, decisive correctness. Right. 
Yeah. So how did the novices do? Yeah. So novices did kind of badly, I guess, in in the scheme of things. They were mostly bad on the non-matching trials, it would seem, where they couldn't couldn't correctly exclude everything. Because they had too many inconclusives. Yes. Or, yeah, too many inconclusives. Or they had marked those latents as being enough value. Right. wouldn't that wouldn't count there's a big cluster at zero zero for for the novices yeah exactly yeah and like you said eric any one inconclusive is going to basically bring that down not count that sample that latent as being correct that's right it was it's a a tough measure that's true yep and then moving to the inductee group so these are the guys and gals who four to six weeks of training that group is quite spread out you can see graph there's an improvement, the novice group, but they're not, I'd say their their spread is probably bigger than the other groups we have. Yeah. But about, about half of them seem to overlap with the novices and yes, half of them much better. Yeah. And then a few overlap with the technician and expert group. Yeah. Yeah. So these guys need to be fast-tracked. <laughs> and then we have the technician group, which again showed an improvement in performance and then the expert group, which had the best performance overall. But the data was, there was a bit of a spread there with a few of those examiners. Yeah. Who were being overly cautious, potentially. It's hard to say. Yeah. We see that in tons of other studies. There's always some spread. And, you know, those are case working examiners. Some are more cautious and some are risk averse and some are not. Some are risk, risk prone or risk philic. So in the, in the expert group, you had kind of crossed out four outliers. <laughs> were they just outliers, or was there another reason why they, they were X'd out? That, that was my idea of a joke, Eric, where um, I'm, I, was, <laughs> I was suggesting that I don't want to include this data for these four experts because they didn't perform well enough. Okay. Mm. And yes, was, that was my attempt at humor in, <laughs> in the presentation. Because once those, once those four are dropped out, the expert group looks much better. Yeah, I like keeping them, though. I, I think it, it says a more accurate story about the variability in our field. That's true, which it's there, it exists. Right. So for your expert group, you know, even including these, these outliers, right, they, everybody got at least six of the non-matching trials, of the 11 non-matching trials, at least six of them fully correct. You know, most people at least nine, you know, nine, 10 or all 11 of those correct. So maybe one or two, if any of those samples, someone may have thrown in a, an inconclusive, but on the, for the matching trials, it seems like there's a much wider spread, right? You know, most mm. people got at least 16 of the 29, correct? Was that usually that the, well, was that a you know, high instance of false exclusions or a just a higher use of inconclusive on those actual matching samples. So it would have been a mix of inconclusives and false negatives. Okay. In those matching samples. I presume again for the expert group that if they made an ID, they're not also picking inconclusive on one of the other nine. That's so that can't be the reason why they didn't, you know, achieve a full score on that sample. Well, you you say that, but there were <laughs> <laughs> there were two experts, I think from memory, maybe three, who actually had marked like an ID, a correct 
ID. And then for some of the other candidates, they had written it as inconclusive. Okay. So I'm assuming that they marked it as inconclusive because they couldn't sufficiently exclude that that, that candidate. Good for them. They were, they were right. taking each comparison independently without letting the previous result bias the, the following result. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can... I can get behind that. So then you, you, know, you show here in this next section, you know, bar graph for each of the 40 samples and then the, you know, the percentage of different conclusions used there. So for the matching trials, all the true positives, inconclusives, false negatives, and no values. And for the non-matching trials, all the true negatives, inconclusives, and no values. I, I don't see any false positives in this graph here. Are they just... So small, I can't see them, or? So, can you see that there are four shaded bars? Yes. Darker? Yes. So, they are the latent impressions that were falsely identified. Oh, and they were all in the matching oh. trials. Yeah. That's Interesting. right. Interesting. Oh. So, even though the true match was there in the list. I missed that. A, you know, a non-match was incorrectly identified in those four. Interesting. For those four latents. That is, it actually has really interesting ramifications. Yes, it does. Some of the other <laughs> research. That's it. And I'm, I'm immediately thinking about some of the firearm studies where they've been criticized for exactly this issue. That This is actually pretty fascinating. Okay. All right. My brain's thinking about that. Uh, I can see this being problematic here mm. in discussions of, of the noblest black box papers, but very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it just means that those other trials were important. Yeah. Those other non-mate trials. They're often dismissed in some of these other studies going, well, if you made the ID, then you don't have to worry about these other ones. This is making me rethink a little bit about some of our theory here about good, proper study design. So no bad IDs in any of the non-matching sets. Just bad inconclusives. Just and inappropriate inconclusives, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And then, so in the rest of the data, in the matching trials, one correctly matching candidates and nine other non-matching ones. And they just picked one of the other nine. And this is, again, right now we're talking about just the experts in this set, correct? That's right. This is just the expert data. And so then one in each of those four samples, so four erroneous IDs in this set? Well, interestingly, so the latent marked at number 26 there. Yeah. Yeah. Two examiners incorrectly ID that latent, but mm. the those incorrect IDs were different candidates. Oh. Mm. So still no repeated bad IDs. So verification would have theoretically caught every one of them. Yes, correct. Okay. Was there something about that latent print? Was it of really low quality or low specificity? It was a highly distorted impression with um, tonal reversal and oh mm. and slippage. So it didn't actually look like the true match. Mm. It looked like the ridge count was out. And the core had become distorted, so it, it didn't look like it matched either. Great. That's a great sample. And in there, it looks like, let's see, about a third of the examiners for that latent 26 also said exclusion to the correct sample. There were just yep. two more that went a step further, not only excluded, I guess that would be one of the two of the exclusions in that set, but then also ID'd uh, the wrong one. And then 28, another one where you had an even bigger set, like half of the conclusions were false negatives, erroneous exclusions. Yeah. Why I really yeah. want to see 28 and 29. <laughs> yeah, those are 26 or 29, I think would be great. Yeah. All right. So 
one of the things I'm already anticipating, I assume at some point you guys are going to publish this, and that's my assumption. That's the plan. So I'm already thinking about how some authors slash critics, statisticians, yeah, C-Safe, I might be talking about you guys, will <laughs> sort of pervert or distort numbers, and I can already see yeah. what's going to happen is that someone's going to look at this and go, oh, no, no, there were five false positives and 29 not matching trials, so it's five divided by 29 or one in six. So, you know, they're going to say the false positive error rate is like 18%. But what this actually demonstrates is, no, those other, you know, 371 non-matching trials is where the opportunity to make that false positive occurred. So it really is five divided by 371 for that false positive error rate here. It it just goes against some of that current theory right now that you you lump it all together. But no, this shows exactly why you would want to keep that separate. Yeah, which would even be incorrect to do five out of 29 because out of the 29, there was only four of them with errors. You're immediately double counting one, but they'll probably do that anyway. <laughs> the way that I thought about this was, well, it, it does include lumping it all together, but out of the 40 trials, we had 55 experts. So that's 2,200 trials in total. Yeah. And five of those ended up with a false positive. Yeah, exactly. That's a very low false positive error rate, extremely high positive predictive value, which we'll get you know, down here in just a, just a minute. Yeah, you know? I'd, I'd almost strongly encourage when you go to publish yeah. this, maybe even reaching out to someone like Noblis or Austin or someone, you know, someone with a pedigree with these kinds of studies to get behind this to sort of bulletproof your the way that these are presented a little bit. I, I can see how someone would want to massage these and distort what's really happening here. Well, the, so... And the difficulty is going to be that these tests aren't all independent. So you can't quite, I mean, you can't really treat it like the noblest black box study where you've got the all 2000, you know, things and you just go, okay, that's the denominator and go. I mean, you, you can do that and say, this is like a starting point, but then continue on and talk to one of the, the statisticians on how best to you know, work up error rates when you've got all this dependency with multiple candidates paired to the same latent. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I was thinking about, Eric, is that dependency, independency issue. Exactly. Now, it's still fantastic because now here is fantastic trial, very closely imitates yeah. uh, casework. You know, so it you know, goes much further in checking that box. But still, there's the math also, like in the Miami-Dade, paper. Right. The math gets very complicated. Yeah. And there are just different conventions for calculating these things. I'd still like the, you know, Cedric's way of, Cedric Newman's mm -hmm. you know, way of taking that Miami-Dade data and running like trials on the data itself to really, you know, through a, a bootstrap, bru yeah, bootstrap yeah. you know, method of just, you know, basically repeating, repeating, repeating until you start to hone in on you know, what that error rate actually is showing yeah. in the data. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, Andy, we, we, we get very excited about stuff like this. Of course you do. <laughs> well, 
But still, at the end of the day, out of thousands of attempts, it shows a very low error rate for the false positives, which is what all the studies are converging. And any layperson listening and they're trying to figure out, you know, should I ever trust a fingerprint identification? Well, it shows that for the most part, yeah, there's a high probability that the examiner is accurate. And where that gets more difficult is when the latent gets more complicated yeah. and there's more divergence between experts looking at the same latent print. Yes. All right. So speaking of the false positive error rate, for the experts all in all, what did that calculation come out to be? Okay. So if we look at every single decision and do crunch the maths on that, the false positive error rate came out to 0.03%. Which is very close to what essentially every other accuracy study has shown for, for the field. And the, the positive predictive value, so again, the, to the difference being the false positive error rate is out of all of the samples where there is a no match, how often did an examiner say it was a match? And that being 0.03%. Now, I can see the argument already saying, well, you, you kind of got some free gimmies in there with all of the no matches that you make after a match. Those, those nine you know, kind of count as, as you know, freebies to, to decrease that false positive error rate. But again, redoing the math and that bootstrap method should be able to address that. But the positive predictive value, again, now this is just looking at when they said ID. So ignoring all of those exclusions that they may consider as a freebie, just looking at IDs, how many IDs were cor were correct out of all the IDs made, and what was the that calculation? So for the experts, that number comes out at 99.6%. So when you said ID, 99.6% of the time, it was correct. And again, matches very closely to all the other accuracy studies out there. I did love this one, though. What was the positive predictive value for the novices? It wasn't so good. That was it. It's G7%. <laughs> uh, love it. Yeah, it wasn't so good. That's incredible. You can almost see that just the effect of just those first, you know, four to six weeks of training on the inductees to get it up into the 90s and then the expertise in the high 99%. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you, I did do a little bit of a number crunch yesterday. Okay. So thinking about this, your freebies, you were saying the <laughs> freebie exclusions. Sure. So- I went through and every time an expert said identified, I then I deleted all the exclusions after that, assuming mm -hmm. that you know they said exclusion because they've already identified mm -hmm. it. So I took out all those exclusions, then the false positive error rate, instead of being, sorry, so I did say 0 0.03, it's actually yeah. 0.025. Okay. And instead of being 0 0.025, it, that then jumps up to 0 0.034. Mm. Okay. The horrors. Uh, oh, that's great. Well, that actually, that is great. And I think that's the kind of thing that in a publication, I think you could probably share. That might be the, the compromise. Go, look, we're going to make an assumption that they went in order. Why would they not? Assuming that the examiner went in order here, then these other ones after, even though they are additional trials, they are somewhat dependent and connected to the previous decision of identification. So let's wash those out of it. Let's not give the benefit of the doubt. Let's just cut those out of the calculations altogether, which changes the denominator, which should increase the overall 
false positive error rate, but as you just said, pretty minuscule. So I think that's actually a pretty fair compromise. All right. So Andy, I got a bone to pick with you here. I don't see any slides on the false negative error rate. Where's my false negative error rate? There is, Eric. Okay. The examiner accuracy slide there for the matching oh. trials, it does give the false negative error There it is. Error okay. Rate. I see it now. So 12% for the experts. That's a little higher than in the noblest black mm -hmm. box studies. But what about the negative predictive value? Do you have that calculation handy? Yes. So the negative predictive value for the experts was 99%. What? Look right. That doesn't look right. Sounds pretty high, but there are a tremendous number of exclusions. That's right, because there are so many exclusions in there. Yes. Yeah, so that that's where it's sensitive to the priors. Yes. So the what we're talking about here is now go back to your, your Wikipedia page. Hmm. Looking at the total population for all the samples in the study, you have a thing called prevalence, and that is the percentage of positive samples to negative samples. So now in this study, you know, you'd think, okay, we've got 29 positive and 11 negative samples. That's really weighted towards, you know, positive samples, but it's not really, it's really, let's see, almost 400 negative and, th and 29 positive. So yeah, that's, that explains why that was so far off. And in the, you know, the black box paper, they have a normalized predictive value calculation, you know, normalized to 50% prevalence. So again, that'd be something to, to look at you know, mm. in the paper to see if that can be calculated. Boy, that's a lot of math you got coming up in, over the next few months and years. I know, right? So I'm curious here about this, this last slide you have, an abbreviation called FigJam. What, what is FigJam and where did this come from? <laughs> so this is not an American thing? No, you, you had to explain it at the conference. So, can I be crude on this show? Oh, please do. Oh, boy, this show? It's almost required. <laughs> so FigJam. F-I-G-J-A-M is an acronym for Freak, I'm Good, Just Ask Me. Okay? Oh. That's Eric's license plate. Okay. But FIG-J-A-M, which was what I'm proposing, which is the reason why fingerprint experts make erroneous identifications, stands for Fingerprint Identification Gratification Justifies All Observation. That is so good. I am instantly pictured after reading that all the strange minutia markups on the Mayfield print and on the McKee print of, you know, how did you, where did this marking even come from? But like you're saying here, the that gratification of, ah, I found the ID is That's sometimes right. feels so good that it yeah. overrides your ability to make sense in your mark. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, it was just, Stroke of, stroke of genius on my part just came to me one day. I love it. I love it. I think also a good way to talk with, with trainees about, hey, watch out that you're, that you're not just getting that endorphin rush from the ID. You know, maybe come back after the chemicals have all settled down and take another look at it. That's true. That's great. That's just great. Mm -hmm. So, Andy, you had indicated that you had been interested in publishing so when might we expect to see something? What's the what's the goal here? And is there going to be any follow-up research to this? The goal, yes, publication, hopefully, maybe something 
this year. There's another little, little bit of research which we want to publish, which is on the cusp of being finally drafted. That was to do with the disagreement rates between examiners in casework, which I briefly touched on in this presentation, and that's on the cusp of being finished. So once that's out, then hopefully we can look at this. And the next step for this error rate study is I'm thinking, well, I've started with some examiners already, some experts, doing a verification step. Hmm. So essentially every decision that has been made or was made by examiners in this study is getting verified by roughly 10 other examiners. Wow. So let's say latent number three, one examiner said identified, one examiner said it was inconclusive to one of the candidates, and one said it was, you know, excluded. Those three different decisions will get verified by 10 other examiners. So each examiner will get a pool of about, I think it's 20 different determinations from a, a previous exam, and, and they need to indicate whether they agree or if they disagree, what, what is their determination. That's the plan. That's excellent. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely look forward to that. I'll see you in Bulgaria presenting that for the uh, next uh, IAPS. Maybe. <laughs> That's really exciting. I yeah, I can't wait to 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 see all this, especially in you know, going that next step from the these raw numbers with this initial look to that next set of calculations with the taking into into consideration the the dependence that some of these calculations have. So What's also great is that it's great to have similar designs and compare directly like old black box, new black box. But, you know, it's also great to be able to just see different approaches, you know, like what we have with Miami-Dade and now this one where, you know, it's more complicated. There's more, you know, stuff to pull out and, but it also gets that, that closer to real casework kind of, in this case, more like casework in APHIS candidates and Miami-Dade in you know, manual comparisons to a full person, both kind of different ways. Yeah, so hopefully, hopefully we can get something out sooner than later. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing all of this with us. You know, super interesting and only wish I could have been there as well, but having Glenn go and bring it all back is, is I guess, you know, a close second best. <laughs> but absolutely thrilled that, you know, Glenn was able to see this and bring it back so that we could talk about it here on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, you know, as a long-time listener and first-time caller, just like to say <laughs> kudos to you guys for producing, you know, this excellent, excellent podcast because, you know, you, the information you provide and the commentary you give is just invaluable to you know, us fingerprint Aww. regular guys. Well, thank you very much. You're not regular anymore. You're, uh, you're in the pool now. Welcome to the research pool and the criticism. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm now thinking – so. Last year, I was talking with some some folks from Australia about erroneous exclusion training, and I can. It looks like the data is there, saying that there's a there's a need for a little bit of work there. So you know, get another little benefit of the research of identifying, you know, what people need practice on and training on. Yeah. So you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, the whole that's right. The whole notion of what is an exclusion is not well understood. Getting everybody on the same page. I mean, everyone probably has their own idea of what it is, and they're sure, you know, this is it. But, you know, making sure all those different ideas are the same, everyone's aiming at the same target, that's the challenging part. Yeah, completely agree. 
All right, well, this is going to wrap up the show here. Uh, again, thanks again, Andy, and uh, for all the listeners out there. First off, if you want to send us any questions you know, or comments about you know, this episode or any episode, you can send us emails, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, you can go to our webpage. You know, there's the links there for our merchandise store. You can support us that way or by following the link there to uh, the Patreon page or just looking up Patreon Double Loop Podcast. And then remember the, the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, so thank you guys for listening to another episode and talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure.